It's November 1993. Julian Chisholm is far from Ullapool, from Aberdeen, from Strathpeffa, where he grew up. It's been 23 months since his efforts to distribute £100 million worth of cocaine across the country was foiled when his whole gang were arrested. Then, in May 1992, Chisholm himself was arrested in Spain, but Scotland have yet to get their hands on him. Instead, Chisholm is in a prison called Font Colón in Alicante, Spain, fighting tooth and nail against his extradition back to Scotland. When Graham Dick, the customs officer who caught the rest of Chisholm's gang, got the call that Julian Chisholm, who was being referred to as Mr. X in the press, would finally be meeting justice. He was delighted. The last domino in Operation Klondike had fallen. We'd been after him for a long time. We had fantastic cooperation with the Spanish. Absolutely brilliant. It would have all worked out if Chisholm had not been sent to Font Colon Prison. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan, and from The Courier and The Press and Journal, this is Hunting Mr X, the true story behind the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history, and the man who masterminded it all, Julian Chisholm. Episode 5, Prison Break. Von Callant Prison would be Chisholm's home until he's flown back to Scotland. The prison is located in Alicante, 310 miles northeast of Malaga, where Chisholm was apprehended. It had a reputation as being a violent place, rampant with vicious gangs, and was the home to criminals linked to organised crime. But don't take my word for it. Instead, we found someone who knows firsthand what it's like to be inside Von Callant Prison. The first impressions were fucking terrible. This is Chet Sandu, a former steroid importer. The side I was on... About 40 heads on it. On the other side is just the etta people, the dangerous sort of psychopath killers. He looks like a bodybuilder. He wears a black tank top with a dangling chain. His arms are covered with tattoos and he has a teardrop inked below his left eye. Chet is now reformed and talks openly about his former life in crime in the hopes that others won't make the same mistakes he did. He had been importing and trading steroids across Europe, making huge sums of money. For a while, it was like Chet's life was an everlasting holiday. Local countries, Turkey, Spain, Bulgaria, Portugal, steroids there, you can just buy easily. And Spain especially. It was okay, you know, it just paid for the holiday. It paid for me and the missus or whatever, you know, and it just paid for our little holiday. But Interpol had tracked all his flights and soon his holiday would be coming to an end. I landed up in Alicante. The police were waiting for me. Our baggage, everybody else had their bags. Me, the mules I took with me, they were still there. Our baggage hadn't come through because they knew what they were doing. They were waiting for Interpol to come, the Guardia Seville, and they just turned around the corner and they went like that. And I write you, hands up. Boom. And then uh, they got our bags and they opened them up in front of us, cuffed us. Chet was arrested and sent to Font Collant Prison. Daily life at Font Collant was about survival and brutality. Knife fights were a daily occurrence, according to Chet Sandu. Even trying to sit down and have a meal was dangerous. About half twelve, you get called in for lunch. They give you your food in a 
dining hall where they all sit. Uh, but that all works as well in like a way who gets what table. The corner tables are where the top people sit because there you can't get stabbed in the back. Yeah, because you can because you got walls around you. You got the corner table, and you can eat your food in peace. To survive in Foncalon, you needed to look out for yourself. This is what Chetsandu did. Twice I got stabbed. I got stabbed once in the side, but that was just like a side shot, and I got stabbed in the back. It was like a nail on the shank, and I stabbed somebody as well. I stabbed him in the middle through my uh, Carlos. You give me a knife. That was a knife fight. Because in Spain, it works like this. It's not like England. In England, you'll just have a fist fight in jail, you know? But in Spain, it happens all the time. Chet Sandu said the prison was also prone to escapes. Fonclan was, was an old jail and it was well known for people escaping. Um, there was two escapes there in my time. One, yes, the other one failed. People were like, always wanted to go there because they knew they had a good chance there of escaping. Back in his cell, things were looking bleak for Julian Chisholm. He didn't want to end up back in Scotland. But going by what Chet Sandu told us, Fon Collant didn't sound too appealing either. It was all a big shock for him. Remember, Chisholm had spent the last few years living the high life in Spain, sipping champagne at fancy Spanish restaurants. And now he had to adjust to the harsh life in prison whilst he waited to be flown back to Scotland. His extradition might have been only days away, but then he made a contact that would change his situation dramatically. Inside Fontcolant Prison, Chisholm used what he had become known for on the outside, being a businessman and being able to build connections with other criminals. As a result, he may have found his ticket out of incarceration. In Fontcolant Prison, Chisholm meets a French gangster named Ahmed Otmani. It's unclear whether they were friends or simply became business partners. Ahmed Otmani was known for many things, violent robberies, shooting guards, and also murdering police officers. And just like Chisholm, for importing drugs for the South American cartels. Here's investigative journalist Dale Haslam. He was a very interesting character. He'd grown up uh, in the south of France, in, in Marseille, a very difficult city to grow up in. Uh, very poor area. He had a brother who was also a gangster. And they basically just robbed banks for fun. They would taunt the police. So when Chisholm met Otmani in prison, they found that they had effectively two things in common. The first thing was that they both had links to South American drug cartels. They both had uh, a history of effectively trying to get cocaine from South America into Europe. And the second thing that they had in common was uh, a desire to escape from Fontcolomb prison. To learn more, we got in touch with French journalist Marc Moad, who had followed the career of this infamous French gangster. According to Moad, Chisholm and Otmani cemented a working relationship inside Fontcolomb prison. La relation you can form a new type of friendship in jail really, really fast, because in jail you are, you're just there on your own, vulnerable on your own. They might have known each other in the past, or known people who knew him, sort of thing. But they probably formed that bond because they were on the high level of drugs. That happens frequently. It means very, very strong relationships can happen in prison, where you can swap secrets or renew them outside. 
there was another reason that Chisholm might have taken an interest in Otmani. You see, as well as a career in organised crime, Otmani was also best known for escaping prison. In fact, he had escaped prison seven times before. The most astonishing escape Otmani had mounted was in Amsterdam in 1992. Here's Mark Moad to explain. In 1992, Ahmed Otmani finds himself in Amsterdam and is arrested for robbery. As usual, he's always being arrested for robbery. But some days later, Ahmed Otmani, who had managed to get a gun inside his prison, holds up the guards in the prison courtyard as a helicopter is landing in the prison courtyard. The helicopter was suspected to be piloted by a cousin of Otmani who had just escaped from the same prison. But this stint of freedom would only last one year. And in March 1993, Otmani would be again arrested and sent to Fontcolant prison. So we have two men, Julian Chisholm and Ahmed Otmani, in the same prison, both having links to moving cocaine from South America to Europe. One has experience escaping from jail, and the other is desperate to avoid a significant prison sentence back in Scotland. Everything was right there. It had all the ingredients for the unbelievable events that would happen next. Chisholm is running out of time, and his extradition may just be days away. Now it was time for him and Otmani to go into business. And it would all start with a strange decision by Spanish authorities. So the courts in Madrid had decided that all the appeals that Chisholm's lawyer had made had reached a dead end. So that was it. He was going to be extradited. He was going to be put on a plane from Alicante Airport, which is relatively close to Alicante. And then he was going to be flown to Edinburgh and then dispatched to a courtroom in the Highlands and brought to justice. Graham Dick and his team, when it, the process ran its course, they were happy and they were ready to take Chisholm back to, to Scotland. But really, really puzzling decision was taken by the Spanish authorities a few days before this flight was due to happen. The prison authorities made the decision to transfer Julian Chisholm to Valencia prison. So they were planning to take him about 50 miles up the coast to another jail for no apparent reason. There'd been no violence, there'd been no bad behavior, there'd been no rationale whatsoever. They were gonna take him there, despite the fact that a few days later, he would then have to repeat that round journey back to Alicante to fly back. Customs didn't understand it. Nobody understood why this call had been made. Even more suspicious was that another name was on the transfer list that day. In fact, the only other name on the transfer list that day, Ahmed Otmani. On the day of the prison transfer, it was visiting day. Families were lining up outside Fontcolant prison. A bus set to transfer Otmani and Chisholm sat outside the prison gates. But why outside the prison gates and not inside? The justification at the time was that the bus was too big to fit through the prison gates. That meant prisoners being transferred had to walk outside to reach the bus. As families queued outside, Chisholm and Otmani walked to the bus. When suddenly, the two prisoners managed to somehow escape from their shackles and handcuffs and run off. 
Armed guards line the prison walls, but neither Otmani nor Chisholm are shot. In fact, guards don't even open fire. Again, the justification given at the time was that guards were worried, if they had opened fire, that the families waiting to visit might have got caught in the crossfire. This oversight allows Chisholm and Otmani to disappear across the desert, further into Alicante. It sparks a manhunt across Spain. Back in Scotland, customs officer Graham Dick is given the news. We were gutted. You know, we'd worked so hard. Uh, we couldn't understand it. We had to try and look for him, and we did. But before we get back into the hunt for Mr X, I want to speak a bit more about the circumstances around Chisholm and Artmani's escape. There was the bus that couldn't fit through the prison gates. Questions arose around why they needed such a big bus to transfer only two people. There were smaller buses that could come inside the prison, but for some reason, to move just two prisoners, they decided to use the bigger bus. Dale Haslam spent over a year investigating this story. He's been looking into the circumstances around the escape. He also reported on stories like this for decades. So I thought he would be the best person to ask about the possibilities that the escape could have been orchestrated with help from the inside. I don't think it could possibly have been a coincidence. They sent a bus that fits 12 people to transfer two people. And what we know is that these two people were known to each other. They moved in the same circles. They were at the same level of offending. One had a, a long history of extravagant prison escapes. And we're expected to believe it was just all a an unfortunate coincidence. According to what our sources have told us, this was the, the, the product of bribery. And, it, and again, it goes hand in hand with what we've been told about Font Calant. Here's Mark Mouad. When you find yourself in Spain with guards, without wanting to offend anyone, but guards who are perhaps more easily buyable than elsewhere because they were less well paid, you understand much better certain acts which don't appear normal. So it is obvious there is money behind all that. You find it in all the countries. Amit Otmani paid people to meet in the right place or in the cell with people he wanted to be with. So in Spain, like elsewhere, Ahmed Otmani paid who he needed to, and perhaps Chisholm had exactly the same capacity of prevarication. Chetzandu suggested that the armed guards inside the watchtowers may have been paid off. I think that was all planned with the screws that took them out. They were said, invite family members, and then we can't shoot. So then you can, you can escape, because that's our excuse then. That's why we never open fire on you. So, oh no, that's why we couldn't do it. The search for Chisholm would take months. He was once again one of the most wanted men in the world. But this time, he wouldn't be found. During the search, Graham was getting conflicting information. I think the only bit of information we got was that he was maybe in Africa, maybe in Kenya, maybe here maybe there, but we never found him again. The very next day after the escape, someone claiming to be Chisholm had called a British journalist at his office in Madrid and said that he was willing to turn himself in and that the authorities could find him at La Manga in Spain. But when authorities arrived at the agreed spot, Chisholm was nowhere to be found. Was someone toying with Graham or was it Chisholm trying to throw customs off his tail one last time? I, I don't know where he would have been. His girlfriend was from Morocco. Maybe that would have been a natural place for him to go. You know, we, we just couldn't 
find him. We didn't know where he'd gone. We had no intelligence whatsoever. What we do know is that the man who escaped from jail that day with Julian Chisholm, Ahmed Otmani, is still alive. Because he recently contacted Mark Moad to offer him an interview. I was contacted by the intermediary of a friend, by a lawyer, who wanted to organise an interview with Ahmed Otmani in Algeria. And he told me Ahmed Otmani was alive, that Ahmed Otmani wanted to come back to France for health reasons, and that undoubtedly he was in the middle of looking at the conditions for a surrender, the, I would say, legal conditions. As far as we know, this deal between Otmani and the French government never came to fruition. To this day, he is a wanted man. But the fact that he's alive, could this mean Chisholm is still out there? Of course. I just don't know. I don't know. I, but I think if he'd been in somewhere like Algeria, with its links to Spain, and geographic links as well, obviously, um, someone would have said something. Yeah. He, would, he would have cropped up. But... You know, we're talking, we're talking 30 years ago. It was a magnificent job and um, it, we, we worked hard. We gave up a lot of things and time with our families and whatever. It's part of the job. We, we did a good job. Graham and his team were livid. After all their work on Operation Klondike, they lose out on sentencing the mastermind behind it all. As for the circumstances around the escape, Graham didn't get much information or clarification. But it doesn't just end there. The Crown Office in the UK reach out to the Spanish authorities to express their frustration. The Lord Advocate at the time wrote a letter to his equivalent in, uh, in Spain, the, the Attorney General, and basically said, how did you let this happen? How, how could two prolific criminals escape from a maximum security jail? And, you know, it was treated at the highest level. And how did Spain react? I think Spain did the equivalent of... Uh, shrugging their shoulders, really. Um, in their reply, they just apologised and said that, you know, it happens, these people, they're gangsters, they are um, very organised, they're very connected, none of their people were responsible, but ultimately, uh, you look at Otmane's past, he's escaped six times previous to this in many, many ways, and none of those were in Spain, you know, they, he, he's duped the authorities in France, in Holland, in other countries, so... This guy is so well-connected and so clever that he's duped other people. The Spanish authorities, they launched an investigation and they said that they, they made all the right noises and said, we'll investigate this, we'll take action against anyone that needs taking action against. But ultimately, they kicked it into the long grass. And why was this so devastating to Graham Deck and his team? In the eyes of customs, they'd surveilled surveilled him and his gang over long periods of time, over many miles. These people had missed out on, you know, huge landmarks in their family's lives, Christmases, birthdays, anniversaries. They'd been burning the midnight oil all to bring him down. And you can imagine that they saw the court, court process. They saw how it was going. They won the extradition bid. It all goes up in, in a puff of smoke. This was... Years of work undone. This year, 2023, marks 30 years since Julian Chisholm escaped from prison. Julian Chisholm's story started in the 1980s in Aberdeen. It took him to the highlands of Scotland, to a prison cell in Spain, 
and then onto the most wanted lists of law enforcement agencies across the globe. So what happened after his escape? Did he just spend the rest of his days in peace? Did he become part of the criminal underworld in Spain or Morocco? Or was he killed by the gangsters who helped him escape, hence the lack of sightings? Nearly everyone we spoke to as part of this podcast have their own theories. Eugene Costello, the journalist and author who Chris Howarth shared his story with, believes Chisholm could still be out there. Well, I'd like to think that he is somewhere in Morocco. He had a Moroccan wife, uh, so he had connections in Morocco. And if you've been to Morocco, uh, it would be quite easy to hide away there. There's lots of small villages. uh, And if he has money, I'm sure he could have a very nice property out there and a nice lifestyle. Mark Moed suspects a similar outcome. If Chisholm is alive, it's a safe bet that he lives in a very undemocratic country. A country in which one can finance a drug run. So it is very possible that Chisholm is close to the places of production of the narcotics. That is to say, either in North Africa, in Morocco, in Algeria. Here's Chet Sandu, the former inmate at Font prison. Morocco or somewhere, Algeria. Them sort of countries are easy and you can just mingle in, especially if you've got money. Uh, you can mingle in, take it easy. Um, them countries, Muslim countries, they don't really work with the police and talk to the police that much. They keep themselves to themselves, so it's one of them places. Chet Sandu also pitches that Chisholm could have met a more violent end at the hands of his fellow escapee, Ahmed Ormani. The normal thing to do is to go separate ways. Uh, if we stick together, there's a high chance of getting caught. And the level they were at, Chisholm must have paid. He must, he must have paid his part in this. Otherwise, uh, the other guy might have said to him, you're working for me now, and you've got to do this for me, and you've got to do that for me. So who knows whether the other guy killed him. That's a possibility. Why have that risk? Why go to bed every night thinking, he can have me in if he wants to? You know. So it's best to just take him out, and then you can sleep better. Even Graham Dick has his theories. One of which is that Chisholm escaped Europe altogether. I think if he'd been in Europe, he would have, he would have cropped up on some intelligence bulletin. He was a tall man, young. Um, someone would have said something. In addition to that, you've got all the biometrics at the airports. Now he would have had to stay in our, uh, Asia or Africa. We may never know what happened to Chisholm. But we do know what happened to other members of his gang. For Chris Howarth and Noel Hawkins, the fishermen from Malapil, it could be said that they turned their lives around after their time in prison. After serving his sentence, Noel Hawkins now works for the Wildlife Trust in Malapil. He runs boat tours, teaches young people about the wildlife, and is a respected member of the Malapil community. Noel Hawkins met Eugene Costello, but he did not wish to be part of his book. And he said, look, with all due respect, you seem like a nice guy, but I'm trying to put that behind me and I really don't want to contribute to the book. Um, but I remember thinking, well, I kind of have a lot of respect for Noel Hawkins. And as I understand, he went on to have a decent career working for some sort of national trust type organization. Noel Hawkins did not want to speak as part of this investigation. In 2001, Chris Howarth was released from jail after a successful parole hearing. 
he spoke to Eugene, who went on to write a book about Mr. X. When Eugene first started writing his book, he mentioned that it was like Howarth couldn't come to terms with what he had done. He tried to paint himself like he didn't know he was importing drugs. But he soon admitted the truth. And after the book was written, Howarth was able to spend nine peaceful years with his family. Howarth died of lung cancer in 2010, aged 53. But what Howarth did during his years of working for Mr. X would not be his legacy. Howarth left behind a loving family. There may be some people in Ullapool who still remember him as Crazy Chris, but there's another side to Howarth as well. If you go to the Ullapool Museum, there, through a glass container, you'll see a series of model boats on display. Each one was handcrafted by Chris Howarth whilst he was in prison. It's an alternative memory left by Howarth that didn't involve Mr. X or drug importations. We tried to speak to other members of Chisholm's gang, Ian Ray, David Forrest, Robbie Burns, but we were unable to do so. For this investigation, we asked Police Scotland for an interview. They declined. After we finished investigating Mr. X, we moved on to other projects and other stories. Then, in late 2022, we get a news alert. Police in Europe had arrested 49 people across six different European countries. The police said the arrests were part of an effort to shut down a massive cocaine operation. What interested us, though, was that a British national living on the Costa del Sol was among those arrested. The Costa del Sol, where Chisholm lived before his arrest, where criminals on the run were known to hide. It couldn't be, could it? Well, in this case, it wasn't. But it was a reminder to us that this story isn't finished, that Mr X could still be out there. And if he ever comes to the surface, we'll be right here to finish this story. Hunting Mr X is a DC Thompson production in the titles of The Courier and Press and Journal. You can listen to the whole series on all your major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a review? And for more Mr. X content, you can log on to The Courier and the Press and Journal. Hunting Mr. X is presented and co-produced by me, Brendan Duggan. Original reporting by Dale Haslam and co-produced by Morvan McIntyre. Our graphics were created by Michael McCosh. Video promos by Andrew Farrell. Additional interview recordings by Callum Mead, Blair Dingwall and Kim Sesford. Special thanks to the contributors of Hunting Mr. X. Graham Dick, Chet Sandu, Catherine thornycraft Pope, Mark Moad and Eugene Costello. Eugene Costello's book on Mr. X is called White Gold. Our special projects editor is Cheryl Livingstone. Mark Asquith is our head of audiovisual, and Richard Prest is the head of content development.